this month, a federal court judge went to speak to students at Stanford Law School. Judge Kyle Duncan has referred to the explosive protests that ensued as a struggle session, while student hecklers have defended their actions as counter speech. My guest on today's program has some thoughts on this free speech controversy and where the university should go from here. Alex Mori is a First Amendment attorney and the director of campus rights advocacy at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Alex Mori is my guest today on Lean Out. Alex, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks so much for having me. Really nice to have you on today. You've been following closely the recent controversy at Stanford Law, which saw a federal court judge heckled by students in a a pretty disturbing way. For people who are not up to speed on this story, set this up for us. I know you wrote a postmortem on it for FIRE. What happened earlier this month when Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan was invited by the Federalist Society at Stanford Law to speak to students? Yeah, so uh, the video that first came out, you know, to situate you where the public was when we first found out about this, there was a 10-minute clip that came out uh, that was posted online showing what appeared to be students pretty aggressively heckling this judge who is a, you know, federal appeals court judge. This was, he's a Trump-appointed judge, and the student hecklers, of which there were many in this auditorium among the Federal Society students and others who wanted to hear him, these hecklers, they disagree with the judge's holdings. There was a controversy over him allegedly misgendering someone repeatedly who was uh, before his court. So these students were basically saying, we don't want you to speak here. We're going to interrupt you, uh, laugh at you drive you off course. And what ended up happening, uh, the full later, you know, later full audio came out appearing to, you know, substantiate what was in that initial 10 minute clip where these students were really not letting him get to his prepared remarks. What made this really unique was that there were so many of these students that they were so aggressive in their heckling and that when no- normally when these things happen, an administrator or security steps in, they remove the heckler. Sometimes they have to remove them one by one, and there are many of them. Not only did that not happen in this case, but you have a one of the deans, the dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion, kind of took over the podium in what was ostensibly an effort to restore order after about 10, 15 minutes of nonstop heckling when the judge said, is there, you know, a grown up here that can help? She got up on the podium and said, we love free speech at Stanford, but the things you say are really harmful. And is the juice worth the squeeze? That was the uh, quote that went sort of viral. Is it worth having free speech at Stanford if you're going to say things that are upsetting to these students? And so in the In the aftermath, there has been an uproar over free expression. You know, we do a lot of free expression. We do all free expression at FIRE. Um, I work on the campus side. For 20 years, FIRE has been watching campus rights stuff. And for a long time, it was just us versus administrators. We'd see a, a speech code that was silencing students. We'd write them an angry letter. In the last five years... And especially since 2020, and now Stanford has 
it's a new level now with Stanford where we're seeing students and sometimes administrators sort of on the same side against free expression. And especially at a school like Stanford, where you're supposed to have the best and the brightest students who may one day hold Judge Duncan's seat or appear in his courtroom openly showing this level of you know, disrespect for even hearing his opinions, that is concerning. And of course, students don't have to listen to him. They can protest him, but peacefully outside of the event space so that the student group that invited him can hear what it is that they, that he had to say. Yeah. And as you say, there's a, there's a lot to unpack with this particular yes. event. I do want to get to the juice squeeze comment, but, but first, you know, fire has taken a position on this and, and I should say to listeners bef- before we start on this, I do support fire and have in fact recently bought a ticket to a fundraising event. So this is something I care about a lot and I, and listeners should, should know that in, in terms of this interview, but let's talk about the position that fire has taken. What, what has action has fire taken on this case? Well, so for those who are not familiar with FIRE's work, um, like I said, we've been around 20 years, we're nonpartisan, and the position that we take on speech is that people should have the right to speak their mind. So we don't take a position on what Judge Duncan wanted to say or what the Federalist Society wanted him to say. We don't take a position on what the protesters said, only that in this situation, the Federalist Society and Judge Duncan had the forum, the right to have their speech heard without disruption. And that in this case, the protesters were engaging in not counter speech, not free speech, but censorship in silencing him in that forum. What they should have done instead was go outside or go nearby to the many places that Stanford did provide for them to peacefully protest. And we fight um, for the rights on, you know, of students and protesters routinely. There was recently something at Penn State where uh, we took the school to task for violating both the rights of the speaker and the protesters by shutting down the whole event and protest. We said, hey, everybody should have the right to speak their mind. So here, our position is is, you know, two or threefold. So first of all, we think that Judge Duncan should have had the right to speak because he was invited by a student group that has their own expressive and associative rights to invite people to uh, campus to speak. And they wanted to both have him express his views and hear those views. So there's one ding there. Then we have the hecklers who in this case were not engaging in peaceful protests, but were prohibiting the judge from speaking and the Federalist Society and others who wanted to hear from hearing. Then we have a situation where at Stanford, Stanford promises, like many uh, elite schools, many schools, private schools, period, they promise First Amendment-like commitments to their students. And they additionally have to, because they're a private school, a private non-religion school, religious school in California. California has a special law called the Leonard Law, which applies First Amendment protections to students on these private campuses. So that means that Stanford administrators have to step in when their students' rights, their students' expressive rights are threatened. So when (laughs) there were many administrators present at this heckling and they saw this judge being heckled, someone should have removed the hecklers. There should have been some level of security there to make sure that the speech could go on if they thought there were going to be protests. And then when the DEI dean gets up and doesn't say, hey, anybody who's heckling better get out right now, final warning, instead says, 
we love free speech, but, you know, wink and nod to the protesters, you know, the hecklers here. I really appreciate that you guys are shouting this guy down because I don't like what he's saying either. That is toxic for a a free speech culture on campus, not to mention it, you know, is violating all the policies and the rules that that should apply to Stanford. So in the wake of this, the dean of the entire Stanford Law School, Jenny Martinez, Stanford's president, uh, Mark Tessier-Levine, they have been on a apology tour, you know, mm. personal apology to Judge Duncan. They wrote a you know, initial public statement, they've written to alumni, you know, they seem genuinely sorry that this happened. But where the rubber is going to hit the road is going to be to see how they deal with this. There have certainly been calls to fire the DEI dean and punish the students. We don't take a particular position on what Stanford ought to do, just that they need to enforce their policies to ensure that students can speak freely and not think that if they, you know, want to talk about a controversial topic on campus, that they're going to be stopped from doing so. Mm-hmm. And and Jenny Martinez is now herself being protested by students, I understand. Um, I want to go back to this. And we're, we're, we're standing, we would stand up for their right to do that. Even, you know, even I had a journalist describe it to me yesterday as quote unquote creepy. There were the, some of the protests that were happening earlier this week after Martinez apologized these, you know, students slash heckler slash heckler sympathizers were clad in, you know, all black with masks. And I think across the mask, it said, you know, counter speeches, free speech. Uh, the reports were that they lined a hallway near where Martinez was and just sort of silently stared at her, <laughs> which is something we have not seen before. From everything we heard, it's protected, would not rise to the level of a threat (laughs) or intimidation by law, Mm. but certainly an interesting tactic that we have not seen before. But yes, like I said, we when people peacefully protest, we will defend their right to do it when they shout down a speaker. Not so much. Mm -hmm. And let's let's talk about this. DEI uh, dean, Tyrion Steinbach, who spoke during the incident, as as you pointed out, and asked this very odd question, is the juice worth the squeeze? As in, is whatever he has to say to students so important that it's worth uh, upsetting them with his presence? And as you also pointed out, some are claiming, look, she did calm the crowd. She did insist on the judge's right to speak, but very mixed messages throughout what she was saying. So how do we think through this statement about the juice and the squeeze, both in the context of free speech laws that govern these students in this context, but also for free speech culture, as, as you've pointed out? Yeah. So, I mean, two things that we always are working through at FIRE is one, you know, did her statements somehow, her statements or actions somehow violate the law? So it seems to, in the sense that first of all, she, and I believe at least one other administrator were there and they saw this violation of Stanford's free speech policy happening and they did nothing to stop it. So again, because Stanford promises free speech and they have to provide it via the Leonard Law, via the First Amendment, when someone's speech is under threat, Stanford has a duty to step in and fix it. Then the speech that she gave is indicative of a couple different kinds of problems from our perspective. 
So first of all, she gets up there and talks about free expression and says, you know, many administrators at Stanford feel that free speech is good, et cetera. But it's sort of a, you know, on net, it was not a robust defense of free expression. And so it raises the question of, is Stanford making their administrators aware of their obligations to free expression under the law? What exactly is the kind of training that they might undergo? Second question, are there questions at Stanford about whether or not their free expression policies are are good or bad, or should they be quote unquote rethought? Now, of course, with the Leonard Law, they can't really be rethought, but it does raise questions about what kinds of what kinds of you know behind closed doors discussion about free expression is happening among high level people at Stanford. This is also a DEI dean who is interacting with a lot of students, um, more so than maybe the dean of the entire law school or the president of Stanford, et cetera. Um, So the fact that she may be providing misinformation to certain students about their expressive rights or about the expressive rights of others is really concerning. One of the things that's important to know, you know, I started my spiel about, you know, how did we learn about this happening with the video coming out? It later was learned that Dean Steinbach in the run up to Judge Duncan's speech, sent an email to members of the law school community saying similar things about how uh, she expected Judge Duncan's speech, his appearance to be harmful simply because previously he has made rulings that are perceived as anti-trans, etc. So to us, it really read as you know, she has the right to say these things, but given what ended up happening and given her lack of uh, her lack of ability to control the crowd in the actual event itself, it really read as her kind of suggesting that maybe students ought to shout down this speaker. And that, of course, is wildly inappropriate from an administrator who should be there to you know, she's the inclusion lady that doesn't, that that includes diverse viewpoints. <laughs> you know, the Federalist Society students were admitted to Stanford, just like the students who are affiliated with the hecklers were admitted to Stanford. And they all have a right to express themselves and speak out on campus. And someone like Dean Steinbach ought to know that. So, it was a very unusual statement to be delivered publicly. For a long time, FIRE has seen the growing, ballooning administrative class at many colleges and universities, which carries with it its own problems. Administrators sort of have dual and sometimes really conflicting jobs to do. So on the one hand, they're supposed to be facilitating the running of an institution of higher education over which, you know, faculty decide what should be on syllabi and uh, departments should have, you know, the ability to engage in shared governance and students should be able to speak out. On the other hand, these administrators are also running what's effectively a business. They care about making sure that controversies are quieted down immediately. They care about when students complain about things like bias or are going on Twitter saying, my school isn't doing something about, you know, whatever is the cause du jour. These administrators 
feel required to spring into action and, you know, say, we're going to investigate, we're going to do this, we're going to, you know, punish. And what's often forgotten is that at the core of a university's mission is the ability of students to sort of hash out these arguments on their own. Now, that's not to say that administrators Administrators should investigate when something like harassment or threats or discriminatory harassment is going on. But we increasingly see this concept creep where it's like a judge came to speak at our school and he once said something that was anti-trans. So that is a threat to me now. It's discriminatory harassment now when it that does not approach the legal definition for a threat or discriminatory harassment. But administrators are hearing this from students and feeling like, oh my God, donors are going to stop donating. Oh my God, we're going to get criticized on Twitter. We better punish and investigate. And of course, again, that's also horrible for a culture of free expression at any college or university. Mm. And I do want to talk in a moment about kind of what this all means for campus culture. But but first, let's touch on the online controversy around this whole event. FIRE does have its critics. And, and one of those is Isaac Bailey, a visiting professor at Columbia, Neiman fellow at Harvard. I think he's probably the most outspoken one I've seen. And in the context of the Stanford law case and FIRE's reaction to it, he has said FIRE is nonpartisan in its legal fights, but comes across as very partisan in its rhetoric. And one of the things he points to is, you know, there's no sense FIRE understands free speech is being weaponized by bad actors to beat back progress to the detriment of vulnerable groups. How, how do you grapple with that kind of criticism? Well, I mean, we just look at our our record is incredibly, you know, nonpartisan. And on the same day that we are defending the rights of Federalist Society students to invite a Trump appointed judge, we are fighting for the rights of students at another university who uh, wanted to alert their campus to what they felt was white supremacist views and were censored by their university. Students at the University of Delaware, predominantly Black students who are complaining about campus safety, uh, were censored, made to sign a sweeping NDA saying they couldn't talk about things like sexual assault if they wanted the university to help them uh, work on these issues. You know, we're all over the political and ideological spectrum, but there is consistency in the way that we address these issues, which is that we just look at the law. You know, the law says that whoever is a speaker at a at a private speaking event has the floor. So whether it's an avowed socialist or a Trumpist, uh, you know, judge, we are going to have the exact same analysis every time. Now, there are certainly discussions about, well, you know, does everyone have the same access to free speech? Has the U.S. Constitution always recognized that it's not just old white guy property owners that have the right to free speech? It's everybody. We've always acknowledged that it's a work in progress, you know, but the ideal behind it and what we're trying to do at FIRE is make free speech accessible to everyone and make sure that people know that free speech is an incredibly powerful tool that can work for them. It was behind a lot of progress in the gay rights movement, in the civil rights movement, and always free expression in every age has been controversial. You know, a hundred years ago, 
people. You don't want people to talk about interracial marriage. You don't want gay people to march in parades. You know, that was the kind of stuff that people were taking to the Supreme Court saying, you got to shut this speech down. It is not okay. Now we know, you know, writ large in society, everybody talks about that stuff all the time. It's a different crop of issues today. But what remains the same is that if people genuinely hold certain views, it's a good thing even, even if most of us disagree with them, it's a good thing to have them out in the open. You see what happens in countries like Germany and France, for example, who have really strict anti-Semitism laws. They've also got, you know, some underground Nazi crises and they've got allegations that, for example, they police, like in France, they police uh, anti-Semitic speech but it's disproportionately enforced against, for example, Muslims who are critical of certain policies in Israel, for example. So these hate hate speech laws and that sort of thing, they're not perfect. The First Amendment does a really good job of protecting robust debate, even really fringe speech, but punishing harshly stuff that crosses the line like true threats, harassment, et cetera. So we are always um you know, if if there's one thing we are, it is consistent. And sometimes our critics don't like that when we end up having to criticize folks they agree with because they're infringing other people's First Amendment rights. But, you know, we do it across the board. We are a uh, equal opportunity free speech defender. So sometimes we, you know, always on every side. Sometimes people find themselves on the wrong side of our criticism, but we are just, we try to be fair with everything. Hmm. And and let's now talk about the climate on campus, something I'm really, really interested in. And I know that you as director of campus rights advocacy deal with this every day. Can you give us a bit of a bigger picture of what things are looking like on campus these days? I know a recent survey that FIRE did shows that faculty members today are more likely to self-censor than in the McCarthy era. What's going on on campuses? Well, people are scared. Um, and I don't like to be <laughs> hyperbolic and alarmist, but it is troubling to see the trajectory that we've seen at FIRE, where we started 20 years ago with a liberal and a conservative, you know, libertarian professor writing a few letters here and there. They thought after a few years, they'd put themselves out of business. In the last five to seven years, we see, we've seen this shift where students are asking for administrators to censor speech they don't like. They're seeking out administrators and expecting administrators to censor, whether it's faculty members or their fellow students, or to write policies like a lot of bias response type policies that end up having a disproportionate effect on free speech when they're meant to they're meant to counter you know discriminatory harassment but students are reporting other students for saying the wrong thing in class or a joke or that sort of thing so we are seeing this trend of not just students asking for freedom from speech but administrators attempting to deliver it in the manner of, you know, they hear about someone said something that a student doesn't like, they're investigating. That alone can carry it. When you when an administrator investigates, that carries the threat of punishment. So that's very chilling for free speech, whether it's students 
or faculty. So what we, you know, I go around to campuses and I talk to students about these issues and I have been for several years. In the last year or so, since COVID, since 2020, when we had, you know, the big social upheaval of the murder of George George Floyd during COVID and the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, which was arguably the most divisive ever in U.S. history, students are much quieter. They don't want to say anything, ask any question that is going to raise an eyebrow of one of their fellow students. And they have told me this flat out, like they will, I will give a presentation about free speech and then they will come up to me after in a hushed tone as their other students are are filing out of the auditorium and say, hey, I really appreciate what you said. I wanted to tell you, you know, here are my views on this, but I don't want to say it out loud because I'm going to get, and to use their words, not mine, canceled. And so this is so disturbing to hear about what's going on on a college campus. You know, this is my presentation about free speech where I'm, you know, dropping F-bombs and talking about, you know, really fringe speech. And they feel like they can't speak up even after I've explained to them, you know, all the ways that even, you know, the craziest stuff they might say is protected. What's happening in their classes? And they're telling me, you know, in class, I can't believe when so-and-so speaks up and says this or a faculty member is not, you know, faculty tell us, you know, I'm taking stuff out of my syllabus because I don't want to run afoul of an angry student or an administrator saying they want to sit in on my class to see what is it that I'm teaching and is that offensive or inappropriate. A college campus is dedicated to this idea of knowledge building, truth seeking. And if you are writ large, telling students and faculty that there is one acceptable set of ideologies that you can have on this campus. And if you deviate from that, you could risk your job or get suspended or expelled or get a note in your permanent record. That is chilling. And we are seeing it happen. Students and faculty are saying they are scared to teach what they want to teach, to talk about what they want to talk about. And so This Stanford moment where we are seeing both this incredible aggression against speech from students and getting a glimpse at how some administrators facilitate it has deeply disturbed us at fire because we're going, oh my God, all these trends that we have been saying, you know, this could be bad. This could, you know, this could grow. Here here they are, you know, we're seeing it happen and it's going to be on Stanford here to take a very strong stance against what happened. Stanford, so goes the Stanfords and the Harvards and the Yales of the world, so go everybody else. They need to make an example that free speech is the core of what they do. That's what their policy says. It's the core of their mission. They need to treat it like it is. And just lastly, Alex, I wanted to ask you about the actual tone of this particular incident, which was very extreme. We saw really vulgar language. We saw kind of gleeful mocking. Certainly one can understand 
objections to judges' decisions. But this felt like when he said this is a struggle session, it it sounded accurate to me. It's just such a disturbing event. And there was a great podcast with lawyer David Latt and uh, New York Times columnist David French, dispatch writer Sarah Isger, and in fact, Judge Kyle Duncan himself. And, and one of the takeaways from that conversation was how bizarre it is for law students to do this, given the fact that their profession will call on them regularly to argue highly contentious cases for clients they conceivably don't agree with at all. Can you help us understand a little bit? You deal with this all the time. Do you have any insights into why students are behaving in this particular way? Because they feel like they're right. And they feel like they know what the right answer is. And they don't want to even engage with any opinions or ideas that might challenge the righteousness of their beliefs. And now, Certainly, it's okay to be strong in one's opinions, but this idea that's so important on a college campus of epistemic humility, this idea that no one person can know everything, that the way that the world works is that we all have different ideas and opinions. America especially has this idea of American pluralism, where there are different people who live here. They have different ideas. The Constitution was written to protect that. And we have this great democratic experiment of if everybody is allowed to express themselves, then we will have a more perfect union. But these students have a very specific set of views, and they are not open to hearing any other views that challenge them. That is incredibly worrying for a couple of reasons. So first of all, you know, no one can know everything. Even if you know, quote unquote, know that your views are right, it can be very helpful to your own advocacy to listen to the views of those you disagree with. Not only can it help provide nuance for your own views or raise questions that are important that might help your advocacy so you can tweak your advocacy, you might learn something new. But to shut yourself off from any opinion you disagree with is toxic for your own your own advocacy because you know then you don't know how to respond to the other side. You don't know what they even think. Then there's also this idea that you know this is a sitting appeals court judge in front of whom some of these students might bring their clients, <laughs> you know, to think that they could somehow jeopardize their client's case um, by, you know, having to, I don't know, have the judge recuse himself because the lawyer used to heckle the judge. You know, I don't know what could happen, but it is the legal profession is supposed to hold itself to a higher standard. Professions like, you know, medicine, like law, these professions where we expect people to be above reproach in the way that they in the way that they interact with society. I don't know that we've ever seen this level of imperiousness when it comes to feeling like they can just break the rules with impunity. I mean, these are Stanford Law students break openly breaking the law, the rules of Stanford, and they didn't seem to care at all. You know, they were laughing and enjoying themselves. They loved that the DEI dean 
had their back. And now they're saying that the university president and the dean of the law school are are wrong to have tried to, quote unquote, censor them when really they were the ones that were breaking the rules. When you have these blinders on and you feel almost a level of like religious fundamentalism towards your views, this is the kind of stuff we see where nothing anyone tells them, not the law, not the president of the university, not the dean of the law school, they're untouchable because they feel this level of righteousness in their views. That can't happen on a college campus, which is dedicated to pitting views against each other. Um, So I think that is, it's an existential threat to universities if they're admitting students who are unwilling to learn, unwilling to open their minds to any other view but their own. Stanford and schools like it are not elite institutions because they have an orthodoxy of views that they force everyone to agree with. The opposite. It's that for decades, they have allowed the best and brightest minds of all persuasions to come to their institutions and duke it out and create collective knowledge for all of us. We cannot have a subset of effectively fundamentalist students deciding what views are okay on campus and which are not. And that's why we have to have Stanford apply its policies and and hold folks accountable that would break these important rules. Mm. Well, we will certainly be watching it in coming days and weeks. And Alex, I really appreciate you making the time today to talk through this pretty contentious issue. I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. As we mentioned during the interview, Stanford University has released a public statement on this controversy, co-signed by the president, Mark Tessier-Levine, and the dean of law, Jenny Martinez, apologizing to Judge Duncan. That statement reads in part, We are taking steps to ensure that something like this does not happen again. Freedom of speech is a bedrock principle for the law school, the university, and a democratic society. And we can and must do better to ensure that it continues, even in polarized times. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.